Welcome to Herding Code. This episode is being recorded March 24, 2020. This is John Galloway. This is Kevin Dente. This is Rob Connery. Hooray! And today we're talking to Phil Hack about working from home. So before we jump into that, Scott Allen, one of our hosts, passed away in January. And I'm sure most of our listeners have probably already seen that. But, you know, I don't even know what to say. K. Scott was an amazing friend, and we were just so lucky to have him on the show for so many years. Some some people recommended one of their favorite episodes was episode 63. Rob, I think you brought that one up. That was Victory yeah. in Software Development. Uh, man, that was amazing. And he was telling the story of the Battle of Antietam, and man, I could listen to that show over and over. So, You know, yeah. one thing I was trying to explain to my wife, because she, at first, when I, when I told her the news, she, she was like, oh, right, you knew him. And I started to explain what, what Case Scott was to, to me and to everyone. I mean, I've never known anyone with such an insane gift for telling a story and, mm-hmm. and just being affable and kind. And anyway, I started to tell her about just him. And she's like, oh, right, we, we met him and went hiking with him in, in Oslo. And I totally forgot. But it was so cool because it just all of a sudden, the memory of, of hiking with him this last uh, June, NDC Oslo, it was just kind of the spur of the moment he was running downstairs. He and Richard Campbell were going on a hike and they're like, hey, come with us. And I said, oh, sure. And that was the last time I ever saw him. And I can't say enough what a great person he was. And I, I really, I think we're all the better for knowing him for sure as an industry, but also as people. Yeah, I just looking on Twitter, you know, I, I always thought of him as one of my best friends and he always took time, you know, like when we were at, at a conference or whatever, he'd say like, hey, John, let's, you know, let's go grab a bite and, and or just whatever. And we'd just go hang out. And it was amazing seeing how he was very intentional about doing that with so many people, you know, like mm-hmm. just seeing everyone kind of sharing their stories about, you know, including people that were like, I asked him a question at a conference and it was kind of a random question. And he spent a lot of time just talking it through with me and, you know, like it just, yeah, just so thoughtful and kind. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I really love talking to him at conferences. I'd only see him in places like London or, or, you know, Oslo or wherever at conferences. John, you might remember that you, me, Atwood and Barnett wrote a book with Scott Allen a long mm-hmm. time ago. Yeah. The, yep. the, the ASP.NET 2.0 anthology. And I don't mean the NBC. I mean like old <laughs> ASP.NET 2.0. Yeah. Yeah. Not the OG ASP.NET. <laughs> yeah, <that's> yes. Right. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. I actually co wrote several because I picked up that the MVC book, the Five Heads book. Rob, that you worked on. And then I, you know, K. Scott stayed on for several editions of that and I co-wrote with him. So, and, you know, it's always like I was, I, for some reason, signed myself up as lead author and I was always chasing down other co-authors and K. Scott, I was like, I always knew his was just going to be like, you know, on time and perfect. And it's like, you know, nothing to worry about. Oh, it's amazing. Yeah. Oh, man. Well, so <laughs> on that note, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, so these are these are crazy times. We're all we're all bunkered down from from this coronavirus, and you know people have been talking about working from home. You know, Microsoft has sent everybody home. A lot of other large companies have, and then after that, a lot of 
lot of states have gone into and, and different countries too have gone into some sort of lockdown as well. So we've got, all of us have worked remotely for a, a good chunk of our careers. And so it's been interesting seeing people try and adapt to it in different, different companies and stuff. So Phil, you wrote a series of blog posts about how to work from home. So for people that don't know you, which is probably nobody, but for people that don't know you, what's kind of your background on how did you transition into working from home? Oh, that's a great question. So probably the first time I did uh, work from home significantly was a long time ago when I started a company with a friend. And uh, John, you might remember this uh, called Velocity because yep. uh, we hired John was our first employee. And we all worked mm -hmm. together using the state of the art of collaboration software back then, Groove by Ray Ozzy. <laughs> That's um, right. Yeah, and and then we would use uh, I forget what the video conference software, but like we actually you know cobbled we together. We used Skype a good amount. Yeah, that's right. Skype was around then. We used Skype, mm -hmm. and I think we used Subversion for the version mm -hmm. control. And you know we made it work. We did a pretty good job as a, a remote uh, distributed company, but we were only like you know three, four employees you know at the time. Mm -hmm. And then I remember we hired Steve Harmon came on and and Simone, but anyways, and then, mm -hmm. you know, I went after that, I joined Microsoft and that was, you know, right back into being in the office all the time. Although I did have this one coworker who was remote, Scott Hanselman, who, you know, we would try to set up a computer in my office so that he could just dial in at any time and be like a talking head there. But it was really interesting to, you know, like when I think about those times and how difficult it must have been for him to be a remote employee in a company that just really didn't get it. And you could tell they didn't get it because their products didn't reflect what it meant to be remote work. So I left Microsoft after about four years and I joined GitHub and GitHub was, you know, just night and day, right? This is a company that really started off as sort of a remote distributed company. It had it in its DNA and its tools really reflected that as well. In fact, they were really geared towards, you know, teams of open source developers who were all strewn about all over the world, didn't know each other. And I worked there for just shy of seven years. I was started off as a developer. And then this was at a time when GitHub didn't even have managers. And then later when they introduced managers, I became a manager and then I became a director. So I've had the, you know, I guess, good fortune to kind of experience what it's like to be in a, a remote and distributed company from a individual contributor perspective, from a management perspective, and from a director perspective. Yeah, it's interesting. You mentioned the, you know, Microsoft. And initially, when I started at Microsoft as well, you could really tell so many things required VPN in and any, you know, you want to, people would say like, hey, mm -hmm. you know, you want to join our dog, you know, you want to beta to our thing, you know, here's where to sign up. And it would be an intern to an internal SharePoint and you would have to join a security group and, you know, everything was file shares and it was just not, and it's been interesting watching, you know, a transition of that over time. It definitely, it's, it's still not perfect, but it's changed quite a bit. And I, I feel like some of that is due to the open source, you know, the needs of open source kind of pushing things. 
Mm-hmm. I was gonna, it always seemed like Hanselman made it work through sort of force of will. Like he was able to like, <laughs> imp, kind of, you know, impose that onto the company through his own just sheer, you know, energy. Is that, is that accurate? And how has that changed over time? It, it definitely, think- from my point of view, it definitely always took some effort to kind of like, there'd be a meeting and then you'd say like, Hey, can you add a team's invite? And you bug people enough. And they're like, finally, like, sure, I'll get you off my back, you know, but, or like, I remember, I remember talking to Scott about this back in 2006 when I, cause that's when, that's when I started. So if I remember right, Scott, Scott started there. I was contracting for a while, then Phil started. And then I think I got full time, like right after, right after Phil got in there. And yeah, cause Phil and I went to, uh, didn't we go to Neo together? I think I don't remember if we went to Neo together, but I do remember that you started not not long after because you were working on helper methods for AC on MVC. That's right. Anyway, <laughs> I remember I remember Scott talking to me about about the importance of making you know making sure that you know here's all the checklists of things you have to do. Make sure they know you're there. They're talking in the hallways when you're not there. And it was I remember it being a really big deal. And, and every time I'd go back to, because I would go back every other month for about a week. And every time I go back to Redmond, I swear I'd have the conversation with somebody, either my manager or something like, so Rob, well, are you thinking about maybe moving to Redmond? And, uh, you know, I just kind of laugh it off and say, you know, like, we're not, we're kind of good where we're living because at the time we were living in Kauai. And, and so this, this finally, the conversation stopped one day because I was at a cafe, I think it was building 53, I can't remember. But I was just sitting there and Sean Burke, my boss, came and sat kind of at this table with me. And then next thing I know, here comes Brad Abrams, who was like, a, I think he was a unit manager at that time. And then Scott Goo came and sat right next to me. And he's sitting there looking at me. He's like, so, uh, so Rob. I'm like, oh boy, <laughs> here we go. Here we go. That's a great like, impression. Phil, you, yeah. Phil, you, know these, you know these meetings, right? Like when hey, he just kind of looks at you, he's like, Hey, uh, so yeah, you know, I was thinking we could really use you on campus here. What do you think about, you know, maybe in the future, your future here with the company? I'm like, uh oh, the full press, you know? And I just, mm-hmm. just kind of looked at him and I said, You do know where I live, right? And I just kind of looked around the table and like, You guys, come on, seriously. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not, I'm not. Hawaii, Redman. Hmm. Hard yeah, to balance those two. Yeah. Anyway, they laughed. It was pretty funny, but yeah, it was it was kind of a big deal back then because if you weren't in the meeting, you pretty much weren't there. And like Scott would always say, is you have to demand that they put you on speaker or make sure you're there, and you have to speak up during the meeting and say, "I'm here. I'm still here." You know. Yeah, I think the the rise of it. it there's two kind of big factors that I see. Both one's cultural and one's technical. On the technical side, if you know who Ben Thompson is. He writes this newsletter called Stratetry.com or Stratetry. I don't know how you pronounce it, but he had a really great post and it was really focused on the way information is disseminated in the midst of the Corona pandemic and like how we're getting good information from social networks compared to what, you know, the news is given out. But by analogy, he went into this whole digression about uh, zero trust information as an analogy to zero trust networking. And zero trust networking, you know, like when back in the old days of Microsoft, you had this sort of castle in the moat, right? The castle was protected by the great firewall of Microsoft. And then once you're in through a VPN, you had access to everything. And that's a castle and moat model, right? You build a big S, oh, excuse me, a big old castle, big old moat around it. <laughs> we prefer uh, the, the Queen's English, a big arse. 
Big arse, yeah. So yeah. big arse castle moat, yeah. And then, yeah, especially we're talking about castles. But uh, <laughs> what we've moved to is, you know, sort of zero trust networking, right? Where um, you secure everything, like the every user has sort of the username and password for each service. And you might use a single sign-on to make that easier. But, you know, you're validating uh, credentials at every point in the thing. And so that made it so that, like, you don't need a VPN. Um, and working styles such as working on GitHub is a really good example of that, right? So, like, you know, we can all work on GitHub. We don't need a VPN in. And I think that kind of points to the cultural change, which is as Microsoft started to embrace open source more, and they started to have people actually work on open source. And thus, they're working with people who are outside their firewall. And you can't tell these folks, hey, you know, you need to, we need to find a way to give you guest access to our VPN so that we can collaborate in the software. No, Microsoft is like, okay, well, we're going to go to where all the developers are. I mean, it took them a while to reach that conclusion, mm -hmm. but they eventually got to the point where like, okay, we'll just go to GitHub and work on GitHub because that's where all the open source developers live and breathe every single day. And I think that's a big cultural change because then, you know, a group of you being in Redmond isn't necessarily this big, as big an advantage, but there is that whole other cultural element of that. I think, you know, Hanselman had to really fight against, which is, you know, if you have a meeting and I write about this in my blog series, if you have a meeting uh, in person, you're, you're, you're excluding the people who aren't there. Right. And if one of you is remote, you know, I, I recommend for teams to, to behave like everyone's remote and everyone calls in to the Zoom chat, which is actually a better experience. Like if you've ever been in a meeting where a group of you are sitting in a room and one person is on the screen, it's not a great experience, even for the folks in the room, if that, you know, when they're trying to hear that person on the screen, that person on the screen is constantly, you know, trying to, you know, get into the flow of the conversation. And then if you have lag or anything, it's just a really bad experience. But if we're all dialed in on something like Zoom, or if you're a Microsoft Teams, then, you know, you're all on a level playing field and the meeting can actually go more smoothly that way. Yeah, I mean, you pointed out the, the move to open source. I think another thing too is Microsoft's just, and I think it just happened for business reasons, but the, the move to the cloud first, Azure and, you know, Office Online and, you know, like Microsoft selling all these cloud native products has kind of forced that too. Like, you know, where it's like, hey, people are, there, there's business internal reasons to move and it's just easier to move stuff from instead of hosting your own SharePoint, whatever weird thing to like, just put it up on, you know, whatever, like spin up an Azure website or share something with, you know, in one of the hosted cloud solutions. And like you said, then it's all single sign on and it's just, you know, it's yeah, like just kind of. The, the rise of cloud services may, like required, what do you call it? Required federated identity to be a priority at, at Microsoft. And then, like you said, I think the, the move to cloud services is also related to the move to open source because, you know, once you're in the cloud, who cares what you who cares what anyone runs? You just want them to run on your cloud. So like supporting open source makes a lot more sense for, for the business model. Well, so I wanted to kind of go through some of the stuff, the recommendations and stuff that you had in your blog posts. So mm -hmm. you started off in your like how to work from home. And, and there's two things in here. One is you give like, you have several things, you know, 
wear pants, have rituals, set boundaries, set work hours, cut your distractions, focus, communicate, you know, like all the, all these things. And, but at the end, then I think a kind of a counter thing to a lot of that is be flexible. Like, in other words, here's a bunch of things to do, but like, in other words, it, it can also be a bit of a, I guess I'll step back to when I started, a lot of these things were things that I had to learn. Like I had a separate office. I actually had my wife like chat me on, <laughs> on the, whatever, you know, a chat app, like instead of like coming in and saying like, Hey, you know, need you to, you know, do something or whatever. Right. You know, pretend like I actually was at work and we both liked it better that way. You know, I was at work for the day. But then over time, you like realize what you can be flexible about. Um, yeah, I think this is the classic path of the expert, right? You know, when you're learning programming, you know, you learn these steps like, oh, take these five steps every time you write a method. Oh, don't forget to write that unit test before every single method. And then like write one line of code, then make sure, you know, go through the red green refactor. And then as you become expert, you know, like it's good to ingrain those skills, kind of like, you know, in the original Karate Kid, you know, wax on, wax off, right? But then uh, over time, it, you you start to learn, oh, wait, you know, I've got, I've internalized these steps, but now I know in what s- nuanced situations I can relax a step or two. Like, hey, this method, maybe I don't need to write a unit test first before this one. Let me just, you know, write that method because it's relatively small or whatever. And so that's kind of, you know, the be flexible part is meant, I meant it as like, once you really internalize these and once you've seen what works for you, you know, don't go like, don't go too hard down the road. Like, for example, you know, one concern I think a lot of people have right now is with this pandemic, everyone or a lot of people are going remote and then they're not being as productive. And so people are, you know, saying, oh, this is a, an indictment of remote distributed work. And it's like, no, it's an indictment of a global pandemic that yeah. is uh, being completely mismanaged in our country, at least. And uh, where it's affecting so many people's lives and a lot of people may die from it. In that circumstance, I don't care where you work, it's going to affect your productivity because you probably have more important things to worry about. And so, you know, one level in terms of being flexible, I recommend like, you know, allowing yourself to realize that this is a really unusual and difficult and challenging time. And if you need to take more breaks, if you need to, you know, step away from the computer, uh, step away from social, I was about to say social security, social networks, you know, do so. There's a really great blog post by Alice Goldfuss. She's actually a former GitHub employee, but I never really personally worked with her, but I She has this great blog post, Work in the Time of Corona. And a lot of her advice really focuses on sort of how do you preserve and maintain your mental health while adjusting to this new life, you know? And, you know, one of her first points is it's okay to feel bad. And I'll send you the link uh, later. But I think, you know, first and foremost, right now, it's it's okay to, to be less productive. It's okay to, you know, take care of your affairs at home and, uh, relax. But, you know, when you are ready to work, you know, when you are in the right mindset, you know, I hope that the tips that I wrote are good guidelines for, you know, how to set yourself up for success. Because I've seen a lot of people who are like, you know, I just can't focus at work right now because of all this going on. 
But ironically, I've had kind of the opposite reaction where I haven't been working all year pretty much because I had been burnt out. And then, you know, this happens and suddenly I'm a lot more focused at working on a project. I mean, I wouldn't, I'm not working full days, but I'm working on a project because it's giving me something to distract me from all the bad news. And it's a project that hopefully is a boon and a benefit to people doing remote distributed work. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I wanted to echo what you said, Phil, because honestly, social media and news, I, I used to, my habit, you know, to wake up every morning and kind of give myself a few minutes just to, to, to wake up. And then I had this habit of grabbing my iPad and just kind of reading things because I'm three hours behind the West Coast and like most of the day is already happening. So I kind of feel like I have to catch up the minute I wake up. But wow. I mean, this last few months, I would get up and feel completely drained um, mm -hmm. because I was reading the news and listening to Twitter. And I think it's important that people stay informed, but I don't think you need to stay informed the first 10 minutes of your day. And I can't tell you, I cannot emphasize enough how that has changed everything for me. I don't read anything until noon. And I figure, you know, if something really bad happens, you know, I, I'll find out about it somehow, either through work chat you know, on Slack or whatever. That's thing one. And the other thing that you said, what was it? You made two points. Darn it. I forgot the second one. It's okay to feel bad. Oh, you were talking about how you, how you're now feeling, you're feeling enlivened. Because Motivated. You're yeah. Yeah. You're helping people. And I, and I was trying to explain that to my kids because, uh, you know, they're down, you know, everyone's down. Right. And, and you and coworkers mm -hmm. too. And I was like, if you can reach out and help someone else, in any way possible, it's, it gives you a feeling of doing something as opposed to sitting there doing nothing, which is the worst. But yeah, mm -hmm. I wanted to emphasize that too, because Phil, that's a great point. Reach out and just help in any way you can, even if it's just to say hello on Slack. I mean, a lot of people are trying to figure out Slack right now and, mm -hmm. and Zoom and you know Teams, if you're using Teams. But people have this weird kind of thing that they won't, they, they have to like ask you, is it okay? Do you have a second to chat? Well, screw it. Just, just chat away, you know, say hello. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times you'll find people really, really appreciate you uh, given the time. Oh, I totally agree with that. I find that uh, a lot of people have a sense of helplessness right now because they can't influence, you know, uh, global or national policy. And they're seeing how you know, utterly inept the uh, response has been to this crisis, and they feel like helpless, right? But there's always something that you can do within your sphere of influence, you know, even if it's just helping one person. And that, you know, not only helps them, but it also helps you. And the other day, you know, like I, since leaving GitHub, I've been really enjoying going to the gym every day, and it's become my main social outlet, you know, going in. Because it's a regular class, so I see the same people every time. We work out together, chat. And, you know, I really missed that interaction because I didn't really, you know, I wasn't working at a company, so I didn't have that uh, social network. But so the other day, I, I, you know, messaged a few of the folks from the gym. I said, hey, look, you know, I found this cool workout. I'm going to try it on Zoom. If you want to join me, call into this channel and let's do it. And so yeah, three guys joined me and we did a, a, a workout. And... It was a lot of fun and I had a really good time. I've had, in fact, I've been telling people I'm probably a lot more social now than I was before because 
through Zoom, I've had several like whiskey meetings or, you know, like uh, hangout happy hour meetings with people. And there's a lot of cool benefits. One, I don't have to get dressed up. Two, I don't have to drive anywhere. Three, I don't have to call a lift to get home after I've had uh, too much to drink because I'm already home when when our little hangout is over. And I was like, oh, this is kind of it's kind of a nice way to, you know, hang out with your friends. Yeah, it's been interesting seeing a lot of different things moving online. I've gotten into fitness through uh, Tony Horton. He does these P90 things, and he started doing these three days a week online Facebook things. And it's pretty fun, you know, and it's like a live thing, and people are showing up. And, you know, it is, it is. I mean, we're adapting, and we are, you know, it is nice that we all have internet, and we all, you know, are able to to connect in that way. Well, I was just really quickly going to interject and, and say that I was talking to a friend about this because we have a gym in the building I live in, which is so lucky. And, I, you know, you meet people, like you're saying, Phil, you meet people and you talk to them and whatever. So they shut down the gym in the building last night. And, and I was talking to this person that I've seen down there before. And he's like, well, I need to go to the gym. And he's really built. He's like, I need to go to the gym. I don't know what I'm going to do. And so I said, well, if you've ever seen these, these things called TRX, uh, TRX suspension bands, they're not like mm-hmm. the bendy kind, but they're like the military suspended from a door frame or your ceiling, these straps that you can adjust. They're amazing. You can get a full gym workout. It's crazy. So anyway, I put a link in our chat here, if John, if you want to add it on the show for people that are at home and they don't have the equipment and they can't get to the sporting goods store, Amazon will deliver these. And then, yeah, join Phil for a workout. Why not? Right. You did offer yeah, that, you, Phil? And- I mean, what I heard you say. <laughs> sure, I, I guess I am now. <laughs> you should. You know what? You should do that. You should twitch your workout, man, and we should all just join. Let's do it. That'd be fun. Yeah, you know, and kind of relating back to working from home, like this, you know, people are social beings, and you know, one of the things that was really challenging when I was at GitHub was the sense of isolation, loneliness, even as a member of a team especially as a leader, because, you know, a lot of times like your colleagues, you know, the people you're working with, they're not really your peers, right? They're the people who report to you and there's sort of a different relationship there, but it would feel lonely at times. And, you know, what we do to try to ameliorate that is to actually have hangout times with my colleagues that wasn't focused on some work in particular. One thing we would do is we would have, you know, brown bags once a week. And then, you know, anyone could call in. I, I may have even blogged about this a while ago. I, I just can't find it right now. But we'd have brown bags once a week, and then we'd all call in and do the, you know, with the Zoom, what's nice is you can do the gallery view, which gives you that whole Brady Bunch look yeah, if you have nine people. Uh, but we would do these meetings and then, you know, kind of hang out and, and be intentional about the social aspect of working. And I think that's really important because, you know, when you're distributed and remote, it's really easy to fall into the trap of like, oh, like I'm all work all the time and that's what it's all about. But, you know, you're working with human beings and it's really important to establish that relationship with each other as human beings. And and that comes a little more naturally when you're in person because, you know, you run into each other in the hallway. Hey, let's go grab lunch. Let's go grab a coffee. But, you know, you're not running into people when you're home, or at least I hope not. And, uh, you know, you have to be a little more intentional. Hey, let's do a hangout where we just hang out for the, you know, to catch up, not because I need something from you. 
Yeah, I think the whole like intentional is a thing that like and going through all your posts as well, there's a lot of things where you just need to be intentional in ways where like going to work and being in a building and being in meeting rooms with other people, like there's a lot of stuff that just happens that when you're working from home, you need to be intentional. Like I need to intentionally, you know, communicate. I need to, you know, like think about being productive and removing distractions and, you know, setting my work hours, you know, as opposed to like going to a business, you know, office, your work hours are kind of set for you, you know? Mm -hmm. And the whole thing about intentional communication, I think is so important. And there's one thing that I've seen with that is like, it's really important to be intentional with what am I doing with this communication? For instance, if it's a meeting, let's get it done. Like I want an agenda. I want to be, I want it to be productive. You know, I want, I, I want to like focus on that if it's a, but then like you're also saying, if it's a social hangout, Hey, be intentional about your social hangouts as well. And, and, you know, like not mixing the two, I think mixing the two can be frustrating. Like if you want to have a standup, it should be a, like, if it's a social thing, make it social. But if it's a stand-up, boom, 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 let's knock it out and get to work, you know? <laughs> like, Because it's always weird when it's, like, not communicated. Are we hanging out or are we doing work or what, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, like, when you're a manager, you learn one of the secrets to, you know, good high-functioning teams and good performance is having clear expectations and accountability towards those expectations, right? Yet at the same time, you, when you go to a typical workplace, you see that that's not put in practice all the time in all aspects of the company where it would really be a big benefit. For example, meetings are a really great example, right? Like how often do you go to a meeting and the agenda is unclear and you have no idea why you're there or what the goal of the meeting is? And, you and you know, you, it all comes down to that there are no clear expectations for that meeting. And the meeting is expensive, right? You know, you if you take, if it's an hour and you have five people, you know, you take their hourly rate and that's a lot and mm-hmm. a lot of times you know those meetings could easily be replaced with an email or a discussion in you know some place and so often better to try to replace that replace meetings with discussions yeah and that's something you called out the asynchronous workflow and the kind of writing things down and then you know a, a common pet peeve is the how people use chat. Like I, I think if, you know, in a more office centered culture, when you chat people, the, the inclination is to just say like, Hey, you there. And like, mm-hmm. you just want to get something, but, but a much better thing is, Hey, could you clarify what you meant when you said we should close issue 123? Like that's, that's something that works well asynchronously. And, and we don't have to waste the time with, Oh, hey, sorry, I missed you. I was getting coffee. Oh, hey, blah, blah, blah. You know, it's just like, ask your question, you know? Right, right. Embrace the asynchronous nature of chat. Mm -hmm. And then that flows well over to the whole, you know, open source thing as well, too. Like, like just like, say your, say your thing in a way that, that allows us to make a decision and move forward. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, you mentioned making decisions, and I think one of the biggest challenges that I saw, and this is an organizational thing, but it, it, I feel like it's semi-related to distributed remote workforces. And one thing I want to be clear before I get into it is a big theme you'll see is like all these practices I talk about, 
are I think equally good, if not you know, more so for co-located teams. So if you work in an office together, I think these are good practices to have because you never know when someone you know, had to take a sick day and so they missed out. But I think that they're compounded when you're remote and distributed. If you don't do these things, the, the impact is far uh, more, it's far bad, it's worse. Excuse me, mm -hmm. my English is not working anymore. Far better. Far better. Far better. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. So, where was I going with this? <laughs> oh, <laughs> well, you were saying that it's these, these are practices that are important for co located teams as well. Right. But we were talking about something right before that <laughs> decision making. Decision making, yes. Okay. Short, so short term memory. One, <laughs> Yeah, this is one of the downsides to working alone, uh, remote distributed for too long, is like your ability to have conversations with adults can start to decline. Well, it's legal in Washington, so we're okay, Phil. You're among friends. <laughs> Sorry, what, what was I saying? Oh, um, anyway. <laughs> a lot of times decision-making in remote distributed companies can be really challenging because conversations can feel open-ended if they're asynchronous right like i posted this question and then i wait like three days and the person didn't respond and like well do i go ahead or no i guess i should wait for their response and whereas if you you know if you corral a group of decision makers into a room you can often you know say hey we're not leaving this room until we come up with a plan of action for xyz although you know i've seen a lot of companies still can't make decisions even when they do that and so I do in my series talk a lot about how do you make decisions as a remote distributed company? And again, it comes down to setting clear expectations, being very intentional. Time boxing is a really important one. Intentionally reaching out to people and making it clear who are the decision makers and who are just being asked to weigh in and who is being asked to observe, right? And I mentioned a couple of different frameworks for doing that that are very popular, RACI and DACI. But I think, you know, making sure that you have a clear path to making decisions is really important. And as an illustration of that, you know, when Nat Friedman took over as CEO of GitHub, not long after there was sort of this, you know, the pace of GitHub shipping features sort of, you know, really increased. And from the outward looking in, it seemed like, oh, wow, you know, Nat has really like revved the engine. But, you know, from my experience, a lot of that stuff that they were shipping had was already being worked on, but they were uh, being blocked by, you know, indecision, like, oh, like, you know, this isn't good enough to ship or who can make this call. And that, I think, went in and just said, hey, look, let me make those decisions, ship it and iterate. And I think that really unblocked a lot of stuff that, that had already been worked on for a good while. And sometimes you just need that person to say, hey, this, let's make decisions, let's make them quickly, but let's make sure that we have resiliency in the process so that if we make any mistakes with those, we can fix them quickly. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, I think focusing on that and as part of communications as well, like it's very easy, you know, as you mentioned, in different, uh, all different kinds of com communication things, like there have been email threads where people like, when you see an email thread, you can respond with, here are some thoughts I have about it. 
but really what's the point of the email thread? Is it to make a decision? Is it to, you know, like, and if it is, what are the next steps? So, you know, and, the, and those sorts of things where, so instead of just saying, you know, kind of rambling, let's say like, I, I propose this, this is the, you know, or if I don't hear back by this day, I will, you know, delete all the files or whatever it is. Right, you know? right. <laughs> yeah. Time boxing is definitely an important component of that saying, uh, this group is going to make a decision on this date. You know, you have until then to provide your feedback. But and the only, you know, make it clear, they are the ones who are making the decision, right? Mm -hmm. And often there, if you have, uh, if people are not responding or are not, then usually the best thing is to propose a very bad idea uh, with <laughs> the time box. And then people will jump out of the woodwork. Gosh, how do you handle things like, you know, time zones, you know, and that's something too, where some people asked about that, how, how uh, you know, how do you handle just the kind of distributed time zone part to that? Yeah, the, you know, for a lot of companies right now who are quickly moving into it, you know, they're often they're moving into it because they're forced to buy like work, at, work from home decrees. And so they're already co-located. So they're fortunate that they don't have to deal with the distributed time zone things. But uh, when I was at GitHub, I had a team that had, you know, almost everyone in a different time zone all across the, the world. And it, it's more challenging because your throughput on a single, it's, it's a lot like uh, asynchronous programming, right? Or, or parallel programming. Your throughput on any single thread at work will slow down. If I write a piece of code and the person in New Zealand is the one who's going to review that piece of code, they're probably sleeping when I'm done. So rather than just sit there and be blocked, you know, the thing to do is for me to go on to the next piece of work, right? And, and then you know, in the next day, hopefully when I get up, I'll have a, a nice code review that I can look at and, and address. And so that's the, you know, one of the main things with uh, being distributed across time zone is to embrace the fact that you, know, you, you may slow down throughput on any individual line of work, but just like with computers, what you do is you just spin up more processes, right? You spin up more threads of work you you distribute you what was it you try to focus on making sure that nobody is blocked at any time you don't want to block mm -hmm. threads instead you just move to the next thing and then the other thing is you know making sure that you give people time for feedback you know if you propose something and then you know you wait an hour and then you start going through with it well the person in the other time zones didn't get a chance to weigh in and they may they might have some important important feedback one thing we would often do especially for really important pull requests is we would keep them open roughly 24 hours that way before we merge them that way people could you know chime in who might uh, be affected by the pull request now for small things we didn't do that for everything right because like again be flexible be smart you know like for something really small we might say okay you know i got someone here to review it in my time zone we went ahead and merged it and if you see anything wrong with it, you know, we can always do a revert. We can always address it after the fact. Uh, you want to look at the cost benefit, right? Like what is the cost of getting this wrong versus the cost of or getting it right the first time versus the cost of oh, getting it a little wrong and then fixing it. And sometimes getting it wrong and fixing it is actually cheaper than, you know, holding something up uh, to get it absolutely right. It really depends on like how much damage it would cause if you got it wrong the first time. But overall, like 
taking on asynchronous workflows like that. And, and I think the analogy to asynchronous programming is really apt because like we've solved a lot of these things where, you know, oh, we're worried about Moore's law slowing down. So we started to add more processors and we've had to come up with new ways of programming and new ways of distributing work across the, and tasks across those processors. Well, it's not a perfect analogy, but that actually kind of works when you consider people distributed across the planet. Hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. Some of the things you're talking about, I've been reading this book, Accelerate, and it's like lean software and DevOps and applying it to technology organizations. And it's, uh, it's you know, some of the things like small batch size and all, you know, like focus on small, short turnaround things. And those apply very well to the asynchronous work. And if, if I'm working on a small thing, that's done, pass it to the next person, move on to something else. Mm-hmm. We got a few questions over Twitter. So one, I think you kind of answered already, but Khalid says, how do you stay in shape when sweatpants are so comfortable? <laughs> well, you, you, you put the sweat in sweatpants <laughs> <laughs> and go, go exercise. Uh, but uh, I mean, I think it's a great question. I think, yeah, organize it with other people. If Some people are really great at just kind of following their own schedule and being a solitary you know, gym rat. And if you are, that's great. I'm the kind of person that, I sort of need that social pressure to mo- uh, motivate myself. So, you know, get, getting people to hold each other accountable is a really great way to keep in shape. Cool. cool. Yeah, I've seen people do this different ways. We have, there's a, I mean, just kind of a, a team check-in thing. Like they started this coffee or a, they call it the breakfast club in, in DevDiv. And it's people just have you know, 15 minute coffee and it's just a quick little chat, but you know, a lot of time people will be saying, checking in on, you know, I just got off my Peloton or whatever it is, you know? Yeah. Um, I started a little pandemic survival club. There you <laughs> go. Yeah. Yeah. And I know some friends that have a, a Twitter, just like a DM chat and they just check in every day and on their workout or whatever. So, mm-hmm. Cool. Andrea says, what's your go-to brand of whiskey for post remote meeting relax time? Oh, wow. We could do a whole nother episode on that. Um, (laughs) So lately, I just got this bottle of Monkey Shoulder, which is a blend of three different scotches. It's Glenfiddich, Balvini, and I don't don't know if I'm pronouncing it right. And then another one that I'm blanking on. I really like it. I'm a big fan of Yamazaki 12. I like Nika from the Barrel and Nika Coffee Malt. And I, I could go on, but yeah, right now the monkey shoulder has been, uh, I've been a real fan of that one right now. Cool. All right. We got one more question here. So Matthias with a, with a more difficult question asking how is HR done effectively, efficiently and inclusively remotely things like reviews, grief and health support. Is there a good way? And also if there's a good way for someone to give their notice. Wow. Yeah, that's a great Those question. Those are harder, huh? <laughs> yeah, so there's a blog post that I'll uh, post to you called Be This Manager Now, and it's by Nicole Sanchez. She worked at, <laughs> also worked at GitHub for a, a little while, and she kind of implemented the first diversity and inclusion training at GitHub, and now she is a consultant at Via Consulting. She's amazing. If you your company can afford to hire her for management training, I highly, highly recommend her. She's really great. 
she has a great blog post about the type of manager you want to be in this tumultuous time or in any tumultuous time. She talks about checking in with everyone one-on-one privately, but, you know, remember like HIPAA, you know, advocate for your employees, stay informed and take care of yourself, yada, yada. Really good advice. I meant yada, yada as in, and so on, so on. I, yada, yada can <laughs> sound dismissive. I didn't mean it that way. So, and, and so on. So going back to the question, I mean, I think as a manager, following these guidelines is really helpful. How do you be inclusive in review performance reviews? I have a whole blog post about my whole view on performance reviews that I think is, I think is worth reading. Of course, I wrote it. But I talk a lot about how existing review systems aren't equitable, even if you're in person, you can see how certain people, certain classes of people, especially underrepresented folks, tend to score lower for the same work. So, you know, one of the things you want to do is try to, as much as possible, create objective measures of performance. So like set clear expectations, uh, measure people against those expectations. Uh, in terms of giving someone notice, I assume he means like firing someone as opposed to well, someone or someone who... else. Yeah, or if you want to quit as well, right? Those are harder oh. discussions to have remotely. Like, yeah, know. I mean, you know, do it, do it on a, a video conference. It, you know, don't do it over email. Video conferences is about the closest thing you're going to get to, you know, just being in person and having a frank conversation. Yeah, if you're giving notice, you know, yeah, I would just have that conversation and then, you know, write a letter of uh, resignation and, and, and submit that as well. If you're on the other end, though, and you think you have to fire someone, I mean, in this particular time, especially in our country where healthcare is tied to our jobs and all these people are losing their jobs all of a sudden, hopefully, you know, like more and more people recognize that, you know, having our healthcare tied to employment is a really bad idea when something like this comes along. And, you know, I would like hope that companies would delay that sort of thing as much as possible. But I know that, you know, some companies are in this position where they might just go out of business, which leads to the same result for their employees. So I understand that, like, you know, it's easy to say, but if you're a, a company in a strong position and you can afford not to fire people, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd hope that you try to your best to take the humane stance of not firing them until things have calmed down a bit, you know. Although if you are fired, you know, like make sure you understand how COBRA works, C-O-B-R-A. Um, it is a more expensive than what you're probably paying as an employee. I did uh, COBRA, when I left GitHub, I did COBRA for a year. And, uh, you know, that, that it wasn't pleasant on the pocketbook, but it was better than not having insurance. And then mm -hmm. I just recently my family recently moved to Washington, one of the Washington exchange healthcare plans, which, you know, they're cheaper, but not, not by much. But anyways, yeah, I hope that helped answer that question. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think part of the thing, you know, we were talking about the communications and how do you, you know, how do you have difficult conversations? And one of the things you mentioned is just, you know, like, both as a manager and as a, as an employee is to communicate often and to build the trust through regular communication. So I think that is an important thing, like having regular, you know, discussion with, with your manager so that you feel comfortable, you know, talking, if you feel comfortable and you've built that trust, then difficult conversations are hopefully easier too. 
Yeah, I and I put a lot of the onus on that on the manager. Although, like, if you're a nice individual contributor, I see uh, you obviously don't have control over your manager. So, what can you do in that position? You know, ask or advocate for a regular weekly one-on-one. Uh, you know, there's this great podcast, the Manager Tools Podcast, and they have this episode. Uh, I think it's a two-parter about why one-on-ones are so important and how to do them well. And I was so it impressed upon me so much the value of it that when I was at GitHub, I actually wrote our first guidelines to one-on-ones that became sort of the official internal documentation for, you know, why we should do one-on-ones and how to do them. And you know, the one of their points is that your job, your primary job as a manager, is to build a uh, relationship with your people as individuals. And one of the best ways you do that is through one-on-ones. You need to build the relationship and build up that trust. And so one-on-ones should not be like a status update or uh, you know, some sort of uh, work meeting. It needs to really focus on what is it that the uh, employee needs to talk about and get off their chest or, or what, what is it that they want. And so they have a whole structure you know, that, that they call 10, 10, 10. And which I would sometimes just do 15, 15, but it's basically 10 minutes, whatever the employee wants to talk about, 10 minutes, whatever the manager wants to talk about, and then 10 minutes talking about the future. I found in practice, I couldn't talk about the future every single one-on-one. This just wasn't, you know, we talked about it last time and not, not a lot has changed in a week. But mm-hmm. I found that conducting weekly one-on-ones was immense in building trust and relationship. And you basically... It's, it's impossible to, or very difficult to have a difficult conversation if you haven't built that foundation of trust. It just doesn't go well. Like you can have a difficult conversation, but it's made more difficult when you haven't established that basis of trust. But if you put in the work to build up trust, then you, know, you, come, uh, you can have that conversation where people are giving each other the benefit of the doubt and um, assuming good intent. And it's very difficult. And even then, you know, you have to understand that when you're a manager, there's a power differential in that conversation. And you have to recognize that and, and do your best to, you know, try to balance that as well as you can. And the power differential comes from the fact that, you know, if you want that person fired, your opinion, you might not be able to outright do it, but your opinion weighs heavily. You can, you know, you sort of hold their career in your hand at that company. And so... And that's always in the mind of the employee when they're having that conversation with you, whether consciously or subconsciously. And so it's really important to recognize those power dynamics and try to, you know, work to, you know, build up trust so that you can have those difficult conversations. And when you do have those difficult conversations, you know, there's a really, you know, there's a lot of good books out there. One of my favorites is Difficult Conversations, (laughs) you know, (laughs) app title. I, I know others have recommended crucial conversations, but they go through a whole, you know, they go through a lot of scenarios about how to have these conversations and making sure, for example, that you really understand the context and the perspective of the other person, that you're not just trying to win the conversation, but that you're trying to understand their point, you know, as well as they do, you know, if possible. And then, you know, being honest, upright. And avoiding, you know, uh, some of the trite things like the the shit sandwich approach, you know, where you're like, hey, I have some good news, bad news, good news. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. Like a lot of people feel like, oh, that's a good way to uh, soften the blow of bad news. But what it 
does in practice is anytime you come to someone with good feedback, for example, they're waiting for the hammer to drop. And the other practice, uh, you can see I get excited about this. The other practice I highly recommend is make sure you're constantly giving feedback and give feedback early that's positive. So for example, a lot of times, you know, when the manager's like, hey, I have some feedback for you, what's your initial reaction when you just hear that phrase? Like, oh shit, what did I do? Right? right. But that's a problem. You know, it should be like, oh, I can't wait to hear this, you know, like, because this is probably an opportunity for me to get better or, or an opportunity to reinforce something that I did good, right? So if your manager is often saying, hey, you know, I have some feedback for you, the way you handled that, uh, you know, outage was phenomenal. I really liked the write-up, blah, blah, blah. You know, more of that. Thank you. And then, like, you know, once in a while when there's corrective feedback, you know, you're in a much better position to take it because you're like, well, you know, this, this manager sees all the good things I'm doing. They see me as an employee. So, you know, if they have something, you know, that's going to help me improve, I want to hear that. But if the, if the only time you come to feedback is negative feedback or corrective feedback, then you, you sort of lose your credibility as someone who is in a position to give them feedback because they're like, well, you've never seen all the great things I do. Right, right. Wow. Well, a lot of good stuff. We've got to wrap up. Kevin, do you have any anything else you want to throw in? Phil, you had mentioned earlier that you had, you had experience as a remote employee, both at the kind of individual contributor level, the manager level, and the director level. Is there, are there things that are kind of unique to each of those levels that people can think about from a remote uh, yeah, employee perspective? Say, yeah. So like I sort of pattern my blog posts uh, around that theme. So the how to work from home really focused on individual contributors, how to lead from home focused on managers and then I would say like all of it, like at the director level, there's a little more focus on setting high level goals and uh, high level um, objectives and how you, you create alignment with your team. And so I think that I cover some of that in the geographically distributed teams post. And so, you know, at that level, you know, you're not, you know, a line manager, you're not like looking at every check-in, what you're focused on is um, how do I make sure that everyone's pointed in the right general direction? And then you need to trust them to do the, you know, what you hired them to do. Like they're probably the best developers or best product managers, best quality assurance folks that you could find. And they know their job and they, they want to do good work. You know, a lot of people ask me like, Hey, how do you make sure everyone's working? And I was like, you know, you, how do you how do you know anyone's working when you're in the office? People are really clever at getting out of work if they don't want to. But if you have mm-hmm. a, a clear mission that p- motivates people, you know, they're going to want to do good work that, you know, people aren't looking for excuses to get out of it for the most part. If you connect, you know, meaning to the work that they're doing, all, all they need from you is to help them connect meaning to the work and to help them see like what the goal and the, the objective is. And they will, you know, they will do good work. They will work hard to reach uh, that vision. And that's a that, that's your role as a director and hire. Cool. Yeah, everyone likes to finish a day of work and go like, yeah, I nailed it. You know, I got something great done. Mm-hmm. Right? So like enabling people to get to that is, is, you know, and then like you're saying, you don't have to watch every step of the way. You just need to help them get to that spot. 
Right. You don't need to tell them what to do. You just need to remove obstacles so they can do the great work that they are really wishing they could do. Cool. Well, this has been great, but we got to wrap up. So maybe we should have you back on sometime soon and talk more about other managing stuff because there's a lot of good stuff here. So Yeah, any anytime. All right. Well, that's all the time we have quite literally this week. Thanks a bunch for your time, and we'll talk to you again soon.